0: very good. You know, we listen with a a greater clarity and focus most often when we believe the the preacher practices what they preach. Uh, On the other side, we also, in a similar line, we listen with greater attentiveness when the person that's giving us instruction or wisdom has been the victim of the thing they're trying to instruct us in. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, When I was in ninth grade, my shop uh, teacher had nine fingers so you can imagine how attentive the entire room was as he showed us all the saws and everything else. We were listening with all of our heart, with all of our soul, mind, and strength. For we loved him, but we did not want to be like him in that way. Eighty years after the text that our elder Ryan Finneru just read for us, 80 years from this point, Moses will stand before the tribes preparing to enter into the promised land, that land that God promised, the covenant faithful God promised to the Israelites that they would be able to enter in once the fullness of the sin of the Canaanites had come to fruition. And while there, two tribes had not yet entered in. They were still east of the Jordan, and they desired, because the land was really good for cattle, they desired to not enter into the land. Now, Moses receives this in in Numbers chapter 32 with, with immediate pause and hesitation, and as he discerns their actual heart is genuine. For they promise that they will send all of their fighting men, will go with Israel to take the land. Their families will stay back east of the Jordan, and and then after the land has been given over into their hands, then they'll come back and be able uh, to nest there east of the Jordan. But it's at that point that Moses, a man who has experienced the consequences of his sin in this text that we see here today, gives them this charge in a specific way, a man with great credibility, to be able to say these things. Listen to what he said to them in Numbers thirty-two twenty-three. But if you fail to do this, if you fail to keep your word, Gad and Reuben, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. You may be sure that your sin will find you out. There's two parts of this. When we think of our sin finding us out, usually we think of others finding out about our sin. And that becomes this great fear. Every one of us, for every one of us has committed sin that, that others around us don't even know about. And there's a great fear to say, what if they have found out about this? How will they treat me differently if they know the level of depravity that I've been or have been in? And yet, that's not the charge that Moses gives to Israel, that others will find out about your sin, but rather that sin finds out about you is the charge. Moses in this text perceives that there are no witnesses to what he does, exceeding the law, and there's no eye for an eye here. He steps in as judge, jury, and executioner, and he finishes the life of this man that is indeed beating this Hebrew servant. He looks to his left, and he looks to his right. He buries the evidence, the body, and he flees. And yet his sin finds him out. His conscience bears witness against him. This morning as we spend time looking at these few verses in chapter 2, my prayer is that the Spirit of God would naturally till up our hearts. That He would give us ears to hear and eyes to see our sin. But not simply that component, but the sweetness of Christ would be even sweeter. The grace and the goodness of God with the horror and the realization of our sin would, would contrast in such a way that we would desire to run and to rest in the finished work of Christ. For this morning, we're going to observe in the life of Moses two components of how our sin often finds us out. For it finds us out by way of our conscience, even if others don't find out. And it finds us out oftentimes by our own community or congregation. So let's look as we unpack this one central big idea this morning, that God is too faithful and sin is too furious for it not to find us out. God is too faithful for our sin not to find us out. Our sin often finds us out, as we look at verse 11 and 12, our sin often finds us out by way of our conscience, our with knowledge, we could say. The two words compounding together, con and science, our with and knowledge, our our conscience bears witness against us. So Exodus has fast-forwarded Moses' life since last week's sermon, or last week's text. We looked and we saw this incredible humor of God and how he uses Pharaoh's own daughter, He uses a family of Israel's smallest tribe of the Levites, and he uses Pharaoh's own finances to raise the one who will be the deliverer for Israel. We saw the humor in that. And now we fast forward about 40 years. So, just in a couple verses, we've spanned forward 40 years. Moses is now a man. He's a man, he's 40 years old. 40 years have passed. The Scriptures give us an insight that Moses in particular has grown in wisdom. He's gained all the knowledge of these things. And as a matter of fact, to give us more insight of this, I want to look at uh, another sermon that was preached on this text by Stephen. Look at, not our Stephen, but the deacon Stephen. You preach a great sermon on this, I'm sure, as well. But look to Acts chapter 7 in your Bibles. Flip over to the New Testament. Keep your finger here because, of course, we'll come back to it. But look to Acts chapter 7. Uh, Stephen, the deacon, preaches this sermon before a people who... It will ultimately lead to them gnashing their teeth and killing him by way of stones. But look to Acts chapter 7. For it's this scene that we preach from this morning and sit under that Stephen bears witness against the Hebrew people for their history of a hardness of heart. For Moses does commit these actions, but he commits these actions with a shepherd's heart. He desires more than anything for Israel to be released, to be loosed from the bonds of slavery. His heart is in the right place in this way, but his hand takes a step too far. So notice what Stephen says about this. This is the longest recorded sermon in the Bible. Acts chapter 7, look down to verse 22. We're not going to read the totality, but I encourage you, great homework. Read Acts chapter 7 to see the fullness of what and how Stephen uses this text. But Acts chapter 7, verse 22, look at the summary we read. This will sound familiar. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And if you're a note-taking person, you want to write in Luke 2.52 beside that. Write in Luke 2.52. That's the verse that gives a description that summarizes three decades of Jesus' life. Tells us there that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, and then we fast forward thirty years into Jesus' ministry. This is the verse that we get here in the in the Book of Acts that fast forwards and summarizes forty years in Moses' life before focusing upon this interaction in chapter two. So it says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Verse twenty three. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he, was, where he had became the father of two sons. Now, flip over to verse 51 of that. Scroll down to verse 51. Several more paragraphs are recorded for us here from Stephen's sermon. But notice the response of the people as he referenced the very text that we're reading before us in Exodus chapter 2. Here's the response toward the end. He concludes and he says, Stephen does, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. When they cast him out of the city and they stoned him, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We gain in Stephen's sermon an understanding that Moses in his heart had a shepherd's deliverer's heart. He saw the injustice that was being committed by the Egyptian to the Hebrew citizen. This has been in light of Juneteenth yesterday. It's been a very informative text to be able to handle injustices and hurts and pains. And yet with his heart in this direction, longing to bring them free from the bonds that they were in, they did not receive it. Though his heart was in the right place, his hands was not in the right place. He went beyond what he ought to have done. And it led to the death of a man that his conscience bears witness about. Do you notice what it said about what he did? Where did he look? He looked in two directions. He looked to his left, and he looked to his right. He sees the pain and the injustice that takes place, and he's moved to action. We could say, head, heart, hands. It's good he's moving to action. But he moves to an action too far. We see so many similarities between Jesus and Moses. Moses and Jesus are both deliverers. Moses and Jesus both see wickedness, and they call it for what it is. It's sin, and they're moved to action. Jesus says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand, or you too will be destroyed. He says to the Galileans. Moses sees the same injustice, and he acts, but he takes it into his hand, a hand too far. Moses finds himself in a situation in which he looks to his left, he looks to his right, and he acts. And in the fear of the consequences of what he just did, he buries the body to cover it up. You see, no matter how great the patriarchs are of Scripture, Jesus is always better, isn't he? Jesus never has to act to bury somebody's body in the sand. Matter of fact, we see a lot of similarities between Moses and Peter, don't we? A righteous fear that leads to a quick action. Jesus has to put an ear back on. That's a lot of our life, isn't it? We look to our left, we look to our right, and we act. And yet, Jesus, the one who is better, He covers over our sin. He heals, He forgives, He brings life. In this scene, Moses looks to his left and looks to his right, but he does not look up. He does not look to the Lord. and Nor ultimately does he look inwardly to the conscience, to God's law that's written upon his heart. And he acts quickly, believing nobody knows about this. So you think about it, he looks around, nobody can see what he's about to do. He's the son of the prince. He has a certain authority. He's not an authority to do this, but he has a lot of authority and credibilities. But he looks around, he sees nobody, and he enters into this situation. He strikes a fatal blow, and he tries to cover his body up. And then what soon is going to be his response? He's going to flee. Why does Moses look to his left and to his right? Because his conscience bears witness against him. The same reason we often do when we're in the context of a sinful situation. We look to the left, we look to the right. Will anybody know? And we engage. That's what Moses does. He takes a bridge too far and he he perceives that he's going to get away with it. But his conscience bears witness against him. That's the very reason and the component of what he's walking into. He's gone too far. Now God has a call upon this man's life for Israel. He will be a deliverer for Israel, but not in the way that he thinks. God will not use Moses who has a shepherd's heart. He wants to intervene. He wants to stop the context that's taking place. He wants to stop the injustice. So he intervenes by force. His heart Stephen tells us, is to lead forth the salvation of the Hebrew people. But it will not be by that way, for God's way is better. He has a heart to lead forth the Hebrews from captivity and slavery. But God's way is better. But God's way will involve 40 more years of seasoning. His heart's in the right place, but his hands are too quick. So in our own lives, men and women... When we find ourselves being impatient, we gauge our hearts and say, is my heart in the right place? And we present to the Lord and say, Lord, am I ready for this? And, And don't knock off the table the fact that the Lord may say, almost, just 40 more years. Just 40 more years. But that's how the Lord's timing is. His timing is better than our timing, isn't it? His ways are better than our ways. In Romans chapter 2, if you'll flip there for a moment, Romans, in the book of Romans in the New Testament, Paul speaks to the conscience. The conscience that bears witness that Moses, what he did was not right before the Lord. He doesn't act in an eye for an eye. He goes above an eye for an eye. A life for a strike. He does not act justly. That is a true justice before the Lord is... Is true equality, to treating the same standards. Moses exceeds those components. And it's good to note, and as I read again verse 12 for our reminder, as you flip over to Romans chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, as Paul speaks upon this issue as well. In verse 12, remember, he looked this way and that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. His conscience bore witness of his actions before the law was written. It's good to remember, for verse 12 reminds us exactly what Paul tells the church here in Romans, in chapter 2, that even though Moses is the conduit, Moses by way of the angels, Moses is the one who receives the written law of God, the Ten Commandments, the moral laws of God that reflect his character and nature. And when we read these books, when we read the book of Numbers, we read the book of Leviticus, and we read Deuteronomy, and we read certainly Exodus, we're reminded, wow, it is a tedious, impossible task for a sinful people to have relationship with the Holy God. Even by nature of living with the cycles of bodies, we're unclean before the Holy God. Even to do the things we have to do to dispose of the dead animals, to move them out of the camp, we're now disqualified from fellowship with God for a season. So there's this reminder, the law, what about the law of God, the Ten Commandments? And we know if every one of us in this room and outside of this room and every man and woman that's ever walked this earth, if we compare ourselves to the law of God, all of us come short of His glory. You think simply of these, and we'll spend time walking through all the commandments, but if we just compare ourselves to the law, no one stands. It's an objective mirror that shows us that we all come short of the glory of God. And Jesus takes those and he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you the truth, you should not commit murder. Citing one of the commandments. But if you hold hatred in your heart against another, you commit murder before God. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. In the Gospel of Matthew, he says, but I tell you the truth, if you hold lust upon another, you commit adultery in your hearts. How can a people stand before a holy God? See, your conscience bears witness against us. That means we can't use the excuse that says, well, I never heard of the law of Moses and the ceremonial and civil laws that were given for Israel to function as a nation before the Lord. I never heard of that before. I'm innocent. Well, look what Paul says in Romans 2. Even though Moses' own actions show that the conscience, the law of God was already ingrained upon his heart. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. For when the Gentiles, there's Jews and there's Gentiles, that's everyone else. That's the people that don't have the law of God. He says, for the Gentiles, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, by nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written upon their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. But on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This begs the question for all of us. If you don't know Christ, what do you do with your conscience? We all know that we can dull our conscience, can't we? We can dull our conscience. Just like a callus that builds upon the hand. In time, it gets harder and therein it gets easier to partake in the activity that has calcified our hand. Or calloused our hand, not calcified our hand, I don't think that's right. We can dull our conscience, we can deny our conscience. We can outshout our conscience, and with enough people that join in, we can begin to persuade ourselves that maybe our conscience must have been wrong. But we all know our conscience bears witness that we come short of the glory of God. So a question we must ask as we look to verse 2 of Exodus chapter 2, is what do you do with your conscience that testifies against you and testifies against me? And the answer is, do you know Christ? If you don't know Christ, what you do with your conscience is you work hard to try to be a better person, but you'll never measure up, will you? Where you come short of the glory of God. You're dead in sin. But the sweet news and why we will gather together on a Father's Day is to sing praises to the Lord who is the great hero of the story. All the men that we could give, Pharaoh is not one of those. But he's one that is great in the eyes of the world, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Moses, this great patriarch of Israel, he is not our example. But Christ Jesus, he is our hope. Give your sin to Christ and find life Give the one who perfectly satisfied not only the conscience, but the written law of God. Fulfilled all the demands and laid his life down upon the cross. That's the goodness of our God. So your conscience bears witness against you. What do you do, believer? You run and you rest in Christ. You celebrate the grace that he's given us you give your life to be making disciples for his glory. Amen? This is the good news that we see here at the beginning that even Moses comes short of the own standard by which he receives from the Lord. So our conscience bears witness against us. Moses' conscience, we see in verse 12, it found him guilty, and his sin in this way finds him out. But also, as we look at 13 through 15, we see secondly that our sin often finds us out by way of our community, or we could say our congregation our sin finds us out not only by our conscience look to the left look to the right bury the body but also by way of our congregation and community confession is a unique thing isn't it a confession is dangerous some have compared it to confession really is a weird statement but it's getting naked in front of other people it's bearing forth honestly where we come short of the glory of God. There's a shame, there's a fear, there's this different dynamic that shifts. And God uses in Moses' life here, in Israel's history, uses the congregation of Israel to show him with clarity his sin. And it leads him to say something that I think in every one of our hearts we would greatly fear to say. Look at 13. 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. So how long, how much time has passed since Moses' sinned? He looks to the left, looks to the right, buries the body, strikes the man, buries the body. How much time has passed since his sin that he hopes nobody will find out about? How much time? One day. He got one night's sleep, and maybe he didn't sleep that night. He gets one night's sleep, and he's hoping he's still hoping to deliver Israel from captivity. Ironically, what what was Moses going to do? Do you remember what the original fear was for Pharaoh in Egypt about the Israelite people that were being fruitful and multiplying? What were their fear? Perhaps Israel would physically join forces with an approaching nation, a surrounding nation, and they've already infiltrated our land. Then they would overthrow us by force. What did Moses instinctually do? He did exactly what Pharaoh feared would happen. He swung and killed an Egyptian. Man's ways are not God's ways. And so he gets one night's sleep, and the next day he sees two two Hebrew men fighting. Insert the whole Matthew 7, the plank in your eye and the speck of dust in somebody's eye, right? He sees these two Hebrew men fighting and he's burdened. Again, a shepherd's heart. He says, "What? Well, stop doing this. He, he wants them to stop. And in that way, he's successful because they stop fighting. But unfortunately, he becomes the common enemy. <laughs> it doesn't solve the problem, perhaps, the way that he hopes. Why do you strike your companion? And what does one of the men answer? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Which is kind of ironic because he's a prince in Egypt. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? It's kind of ironic, isn't it? But the man uses a line that's used most often today in the West to excuse our sin. When somebody shows us our sin, what do we say? You're not my judge. What does a child say? What does a 12-year-old say? You're not my dad. You're not my parent. Who are you? He does the same thing. You're not my judge. As a matter of fact, one of the most common citations in Scripture, you can't judge me. He quotes it back to him, and then he gives the dagger. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians, uh, the Egyptian? So we wonder, how did the word spread? We know bad news spreads quickly. How did the word spread? He looked to his left and looked to his right and saw nobody. Only he knew and the Lord knew. But who's the other witness that would have been there? Who's the other witness? The man whose life he perhaps saved. Somehow, this man tells the story. We would have reason to say of what Moses did, this prince of Pharaoh. The word has spread. And Moses thinks perhaps all of our fears of when our sin could find us out. Surely the thing is known the fear and the shame. And he'll flee. But the beauty that God gives us as a church family as we consider these things is this is a part of the commitment that we make together. He'll flee for 40 years and then he'll lead Israel who will struggle and doubt for 40 more years in the wilderness. Talk about a stress-free life to be used of God, right? No. Dr. James Boy summarizes this. The late Dr. James Boy summarizes this in a way I, better than I ever could. He says, Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning to be something. He was 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And he was 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. God in our lives uses a community of people to show us our sin. Surely the thing is known. Listen, our instinct is that nobody would know our sin. And yet the way God has wired us and saved us and made us a congregational people a congregational people, is that others would be close enough to our lives to see our sin and would love us enough to help expose that sin with us and for us. And that God would give us soft enough hearts that we would receive it and confess it and bind us together in the gospel as we minister the good news of Christ to each other reminding that there is no fear in the love of God, for perfect love casts out fear. This is Galatians 6. This is Next week is part two of our new member class, and part of the seven commitments we make, one among them is, is the commitment to, to strive for a holy life together. This means very simply that we aim and commit ourselves to practice Galatians 6 together. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted and bear one another's burdens, and in this way, we fulfill the law of Christ. That's a beautiful gift of congregational life, to be close enough. So when Pastor Stephen referenced earlier these small group connects nights, small group, and be a part of, a, be a part of one of our men's groups or our women's groups, and be a part of one of our small groups. And the goal is, and the hope is, is that in a smaller environment, in a group that's close enough where you can see each other's shortcomings and transgressions, That in love and gentleness, we're able then to minister God's Word together and spur each other on toward love and good deeds and resting in Christ. We're talking the very next day, sin finds them out. Is this good news or is this bad news? So in all of these things, I want to give you an example. Every Christian, I think we can relate to the feeling of a fear of being found out in our sin. But I want to give you an example of a tendency that we will have to do what Moses did when he realized what he did is known. What did he do? He stopped. He considered his sin and he sought reconciliation. Is that right? No, not at all. If you're like, "Yeah, that's right." I'm like, "What do you That's not what we read. That's not at all what he did. What did he do? My sin is known. And what what do you do then? Then Moses was afraid and thought, "Surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses fled. And you and I, just as we see in Adam's life, when his sin is there, what does Adam and Eve do in the garden when the Lord approaches them? What did they already do when they sin? They ran. What does Moses do after he's looked to his left and looked to his right and thought maybe he was Nobody knew about it. What does he do when he realizes people know? The consequences are coming and he runs. Do you think it's possible that that tendency is still in my life and still in your life? Even as a believer in Christ, do you think it's possible that that tendency is still there? We could give a ton of examples, right? Every one of us could give examples right now. I'm going to give one example of what I saw when I was a youth pastor. Because I I think all of us are pretty much just older kids at our heart. We see a lot of the tendencies that we did when we were children outplay itself through the rest of our lives, don't we? I'll give you one example, then you can fill in the rest of the blanks for your life. But here's what I would see as a youth pastor so often. I would hear the dreaded news that a middle schooler boy began dating a middle school girl. Dreaded news. Listen, I speak as a man that started dating his wife in eighth grade, okay? So there's no judgment here. There's a little bit of judgment. So here's, we, we wouldn't do it again, okay? But the Lord provided and protected us, and I don't advise that. But anyway, I, I, could count, I could basically put a shot clock on what would happen when a middle school boy started dating a middle school girl, or uh, even many, for the most part, a high school boy and a high school girl. Do you know what would happen? All of a sudden, their youth group attendance would explode. They would be there all the time. But do you know what would happen when inevitably sexual sin would occur in that relationship? All of a sudden, those students begin to find homework to be a big priority for why they could no longer attend youth group. And we'd never see them again. They'd never have to go to youth group because that was the optional thing. Usually they'd have to go to church, but then they would only sit with their parent and then they would sneak out right after the service. And a picture of why that, and we pursued them. Why would that happen? It, It happened, I believe, so often because when the shame or the sin or the embarrassment came into their life of, of sin, they did never wanted to confess it. They didn't want to process back through the hurt and all the complicated components of that, and they ran from the youth leaders that had poured into their life. They would avoid them like the plague. And then oftentimes and the, that child would talk to their parents and say, I really actually want to go to this youth group over here. And the parent will be like, well, it's good that they want to go somewhere and then they would go to that youth group and you know what happened we'd see the kid in a year after that relationship broke up and then they'd come back but it's a cycle of shame and fear he was afraid moses was and he ran that's in our hearts when we're kids it's in our hearts when we're men and women and have careers and it's in our hearts when we're senior adults and the gift that God gives us, now listen, the model of the Hebrews that show their sin, this is not prescriptive. Whenever we read a story scripture, what do we ask? Whether it's Acts or anywhere else? Is what I'm reading simply describing what took place? Is it descriptive or is it prescribing what I should do? Is it like a prescription? I should do this. We should not look at the example of the Hebrew men that show him and tell him about his sin. Are you going to kill us too? We should make that our norm for showing sin, right? That's not the main way for... That's not gentleness. But we should note that the Lord did use a community, His own people, to show Him His sin. So we can't take that as prescriptive the way they did it, but we can certainly take the principle of showing sin in community as a way that God ministers to us and the Spirit grows us and sanctifies us. So as a practical application in our lives, we have to be honest and say, do I have enough people in my life that know me close enough And love me enough that they would help show me my sin and gentleness. And if you don't have that, I want to encourage you, get involved with that small group connect night. Just get involved with some believers that prioritize God's word in their lives. They're fun people but that you can have enough people that see into your life to, in gentleness and you can play the responsibility that the Holy Spirit has given you as well to walk in accountability with others, to help play that role in their life, to grow them in Christ likeness. That is the best for our lives. That's the best for Moses' life. He wouldn't have written this to unfold in this way, but God's plan is good. God is too faithful to allow our sin not to find us out. Even though he runs, he will not outrun the calling of God. Now, before we look at our next steps, in Genesis 37-24 is the last time that we've seen a well take place, a cistern, a pit. So, if we're just reading through the law, the first five books of the Bible, that's the last time we would have read that. And in that story, if you remember, we have Joseph, who is his father's favorite. His brothers do not like that, and they take him to the pit. And they cast him down it as they consider what they're going to do with his life. They ultimately decide to sell him into slavery rather than kill him. But at the pit of that well, Joseph has more peace than Moses does who's simply resting against one. Why? Because Joseph is resting in the promises of Yahweh. Moses is running from the consequence of his sin. This morning, if you find yourself here running in your heart and your mind away from the consequences of your sin, you stop and you confess it to the Lord. This morning, as we look into our next steps, there's two songs of response. One in which we grow in treasuring Christ and another in which we say, make that song the aim of your heart. Confess it to the Lord today. Stop running. And find the peace that can be yours as Joseph's was at the bottom of a pit. Rather than thinking you're outside the pit, but in reality, your heart is in bondage of fear that you may be found out. So our first question I want to ask you is: in our next step is, have I been running from God's calling for me to live for Him? Have you ever just asked the question, what's God's call for my life? Now, we know there's 1 Thessalonians 5 and there's general calls and wills for your life to rejoice always, to give thanks in all things, to pray continually, to share the gospel message, to practice the one another's in community, to be a disciple maker. We know these are God's calls in our life. If you don't know Christ, God's call upon your life is to come and to know Him, the grace and goodness of our God. If you know Christ and you have a relationship perhaps that's strained like the two ladies in Philippians 4 that doesn't seem to be a sin issue, but there's a personality distinction that's so far apart that it's frazzling the, churches in, the church in Philippi. It's the Lord calling you to reconciliation, forgiveness. Perhaps on a day like this of, of Father's Day, a call to surrender any guilt in your conscience or a longing to make reconciliation with the Lord if your father's already passed. The calling to be a spiritual father to others and to embrace them and to pursue them. What's God's call upon your life? Perhaps it's a call to missions or to vocational ministry. Don't run from the Lord. Rest in the goodness of who He says you are. So number one, have I been running from God's calling for me to live for Him? Number two, is there sin I need to agree with Him about in this initial time of response? I want to give to you a a little bit of the jewel that Ralph gave to our men's fellowship Thursday morning at our breakfast at 6.30. Coffee tastes really good at 6.30 but one of the charges that he gave us as men and as husbands is to be able to confess our sin and to say I'm sorry. And here's what he said in summary. It sounds like this. I was wrong. Period. No explanation and no excuses. I was wrong and I am sorry. I want you to forgive me. In our song, in a moment, as we stand in just a little bit and sing to the Lord, would you just confess that in your heart to God? That's what confession is. It's acknowledging that the Lord is right and His way is sweeter. So let the Lord help us as men and women to apply that same context to our relationships. I am wrong. No excuses. No reasoning. Let's walk in His grace from there. Isn't His way good? What an opportunity God gives us and a gift He gives us to sing His praises today. And finally, I want to ask you that leads us to this next component as we consider and we confess our sin to the Lord is how can I treasure Christ in my circumstances? How can you treasure Christ right now? What's that look like? That was another one that Ben Dotson shared with us. What's it look like for you to treasure Christ in this season of your life? You ask the Holy Spirit, God, what does it look like for me to treasure you right now today and give me strength and courage to live in that light? Isn't that good? He's worthy of our treasuring, even and especially when our sin finds us out. Would you stand with me, church body, as we sing joyfully to the one who consumes our worship?